I wonder uh, what camp are you in when it comes to Samson? Because Samson divides opinion. Uh, he, he polarizes opinion, you might say. Uh, and there's some very strong opinions about him. You might remember that Samson's name means sunshine. Uh, and there are those who say that Samson shone brightly as an example of faith in the darkest of times. Now, for, for that argument to, to be constructed, uh, you need to, to deal with Samson in a particular way. So you would focus on uh, the, the statement that he was a judge in Israel for 20 years. Um, and you would have to focus on the idea that he was a type of the nation. So the compromising situations in which he, he finds himself from time to time, having a, a wife of the Philistines, uh, visit, visiting a, a harlot, having a, a lover in the camp of the Philistines, all, all of those things. If Samson is a shining example of faith, you, you would have to attribute to him being a type of the nation. So he is displaying to the nation around him uh, what they are doing. Because the issue with that is, were they actually watching him? And that perhaps is why there, there is another case to be made, and that is a much more, well, critical case. So some would say that Samson was nothing more than a womanizer, that he was self-centered, that he was disinterested in God and Israel, that, that this, the 13th and final judge in the sequence of the book of Judges, well, displays to us a, a man who, who was a, a promise breaker a man who had been committed to, to God, his life, as we read in chapter 13, and yet um, systematically through his life was going to, well, to break the promises that his parents had made on his behalf. Now, as you can see, those are two very different pictures, and hopefully I won't lose half the audience immediately if I say that I'm not in either of those camps. I must admit to you that my reading of Samson is that this was a man who had great potential, a man who from time to time displays some great intentions, and yet a, a very human man, a man who has a talent for getting distracted, perhaps even a, a penchant for reckless decisions from time to time. But critically, however we might interpret Samson, whatever we might judge him, he is, of course, a man with whom God chose to work uh, in certain circumstances, regardless of any weakness he might have displayed or compromises which we might find in him. Of course, it, it has to be said that the writer of the Judges, whoever that might be, was under no illusion that Samson had fantastic potential. Uh, I mean, we, we read Judges 13, didn't we, as an introduction, and and only Samson has a Judges 13. What, what I mean by that is only this judge has an entire chapter dedicated to his arrival and the promises which surrounded his arrival and what it was possible that Samson was going to do. And immediately we're introduced to a, a part of the tribe of Dan who had stayed in the right place. You, you might remember that a lot of the tribes of Dan at this time had um, moved northward. They were 100 miles north in Laish. They'd gone looking for an easy life. Uh, that's um, an account which we come across in Judges 18, but not this section of the family. And then as we gather statistics about the promise which Samson displays, well, we have the full chapter, 
we, we have his, um, his announcement by the angel of the Lord. Intriguingly, the angel of the Lord is only said to have announced Samson and Isaac uh, in terms of, of children who were to come. In verse 24, we have th this description of Samson's uh, is growing up. The child grew, the Lord blessed him. Now, now those words are reserved for a very select audience. Only Samson, Samuel and the Lord Jesus Christ have that uh, description of their childhood. And finally, of course, we have in Samson the first Nazarite, N not someone who would commit to 30 or 60 or 90 days, as would be more common. Here we have the first Nazarite who was appointed by God before he came another first, I think. And this was to be a lifelong commitment. He would be wonderfully separated to God throughout the life that he would live. So you see then, by the time we get to the end of chapter 13 and Samson actually uh, arrives in the account, the, the expectations are extremely high. God had said that through this son, that, that he would begin to judge Israel. And yet, of course, the rest of the account, the, the next three chapters which follow on, seem to be a series of failure and disappointment. And by the time we get to chapter 16, well, what, what a contrast we have in Samson and Delilah. It, because here was something, someone that Samson really did fall in love with. I, I mean, we're told that, chapter 16, verse 4, he loved her. The, the only woman in the account that he is said to have loved. And it wasn't just that Samson fell in love with Delilah. Let's have a look at what she took from him. Judges 16, verse 16. There's a, a very specific set of things which Delilah was looking for. It came to pass when Delilah pressed Samson, Judges 16, verse 16, pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death, that he told her all his heart and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have not been, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb, if I be shaven then my strength will go from me and I shall become weak. And intriguingly, if you, if you highlight a couple of words in those two verses, we have that she, uh, he told her all that was in his heart, beginning of verse 17, his soul was vexed unto death, and in verse 16, my strength will go from me, end of 17. And of course, heart, soul and strength uh, are a series of words which, appear in some key places and they they capture all that a person might be and, and all the potential they might have so when we look at Deuteronomy chapter 16 and we're told that we should be loving God with all of our heart our soul and our might that heart has the idea it is our intellect all the things that we think we should be loving God with those our soul is is who we are so everything we are, we should be displaying love to God too, and might everything we might do. And so we capture all that we can be, and all that we are, and all that Samson could be, and, and all that he was. Well, at this point, Delilah is taking it all from him. She, she demanded it from him, and when he gave it to her, she did not hesitate to take it from him and to 
well, to, to put Samson into a, a most difficult and dangerous position. I don't suppose that we perceive our tendency to sin like, like Delilah is, predicted, uh, is, is portrayed there in Judges 16. Do, do we see ourselves so very, very vulnerable to sin, to, to temptation, as Samson clearly is, as we watch him returning time and again to this woman? Because it wasn't just Delilah's fault. Samson was equally to blame. I mean, what was he thinking? She, she had been very clear as to what the game was. Verse 6, Judges 16, Delilah said to Samson, Tell me, I pray thee, wherein thy great strength lieth, and wherewith thou mightest be bound to afflict thee. And yet Samson was blind to what Delilah was trying to do, as potentially sometimes we also are blind to the danger of sin and the temptations which we have to deal with. It's intriguing that, that Delilah is the only woman in the account who gets a name. Uh, we read of Samson's mother at length in Judges 13, 13 times she was referenced, in fact, but never was she named. Neither is uh, Samson's wife named uh, in the following chapter, neither is the, the harlot named in the chapter after uh, that, chapter 16, sorry. But Delilah is named. Why? Well, I can't give you a definitive uh, answer there. But perhaps um, it, it gives us a, a feel for her. Of course, one of the things we have to try to work out is, was she a Philistine or not? It's not clear. Samson's wife talks of the Philistines with the title, The Children of My People. Delilah doesn't do that. She tells Samson, the Philistines are coming. So not really clear what we can do in terms of language. So some people have gone down the, the Arabic route, uh, and you can see some very different suggestions there. Some say Delilah means feeble, which she certainly was not. Others say that Delilah means flirt. Well, she was certainly capable of that. And some of the more technical commentators, well, they entertain the idea that perhaps she was a Hebrew, in which case, if Delilah is a, a Hebrew name or a, a, a development of it, then if you look at the consonants, then you can, you can do a little bit of fancy footwork with the Hebrew and you can come up with the idea that Delilah means of the night. Well, certainly she would contrast him, wouldn't she? And if Samson means sunshine, she was certainly going to, uh, to be the night to that sunshine. And yes, of course, she wasn't the only one working on Samson, was she? For God also would move eventually in his dealings with this man to turn out the light, so to speak. It's a solitary lesson, you know, when you look at Samson, his real problem was his eyes, because he went places, potentially with good intentions, and he saw things which distracted him. So we're told in verse 14, sorry, chapter 14, he went to Timnah, we're not told why, but when he got there, we're told he saw a woman who pleased him. Equally, chapter 16, he went to Gaza, we're not told why, but when he got there, he saw a harlot with whom he spent time. Samson had a problem. He was distracted by some of the things which he saw around him. And potentially then, God, allowing the Philistines to deal with him in a certain manner, allowed for Samson's eyes to be taken so that eventually he might see more clearly. 
Because the, the image of Samson in prison is a, is a very sad one. A man blinded, a man confined, a man subject to, to manual labour. A painful contrast to chapter 13 and the potential of all the man could have been. And in prison he is a powerful type of the nation that he had been sent to serve. Uh, it's intriguing if you do a little survey of the things, the consequences of the actions which Israel had been warned of if they ignored what God had asked of them, if they did what they wanted to do. Well, it, it's an interesting uh, list of warnings in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. And an awful lot of those warnings you can see coming to fruition in Samson's experience. So Israel were warned that they would be seized, that they would be blinded, that they would be exiled, that they would be imprisoned, humiliated, that there would be forced labour. And all of those things we see Samson having to endure. You can take it further as well. In fact, the words which are used of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, are almost an exact repeat of words which describe Samson when the Philistines take him and imprison them. Of both Zedekiah and Samson, it is said their eyes were put out. Of both Zedekiah and Samson, it was said they, are bound, they were bound in fetters of brass. Undoubtedly then, Samson is a, an effective type of Israel uh, of this period. Uh, and yet his confinement seems to focus him and the ill treatment and jeers of the Philistines ultimately do deliver progress and a result. Judges 16 verse 28. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me. That, that's an unusual way to address the Lord God. Uh, specifically Adonai Yahweh, Sovereign Lord. The, the New International Readers Version has it, O Lord and King. Notice that Samson calls unto the Lord. That's an intriguing contrast. In chapter 15, verse 18, he then prays also, and he's said to call upon the Lord when God gives him drink after a, a thirsty fight with the Philistines. But now he calls unto the Lord. But perhaps just a hint there that Samson is mindful that, that God is a little more distant at this point. Not, not that he's been abandoned. God is certainly within hearing distance. He is waiting for the call. And Samson finally calls. O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged. Of my, for my two eyes. I don't know if you spotted, intriguingly, the revised version margin as it, Samson prayed that I might be avenged of the Philistines for one of my two eyes. I, I can't possibly give you the answer as to which is the better translation, but I like the revised margin because does that suggest that Samson was mindful that in being blinded, his problem had in some way been addressed and now he could see more clearly? And now he was more clear in his mind as to where his help might come from. I do like the idea that perhaps Samson was making some mental progress there, even if he wasn't physically able to move. That the prayer is interesting too. I just highlight that you see that pattern. Six times Samson refers to himself 
Remember me, I pray thee. Strengthen me, I pray thee, that I may be at once avenged for my two eyes. Of course, that might be a remnant of Samson being self-centered. Me, me, me. But it could also equally be an indication that God answers the prayers of the perfect man and woman and the imperfect, for sure. And so it was then that this mighty man again felt strength in, in his muscles. He bowed himself, verse 30, with all his might. That's a, a poor translation. Let me take all his out. It's not there because it wasn't his might. Samson now was experiencing the might which God chose to return him. He bowed himself with all might. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. And so ends that the life of one of the most colourful judges, for sure. Arguably one of the, the greatest and, and highest profile judges. In terms of personal achievements, a, a judge who seems to have made progress and then well, made mistake and been conflicted and from time to time compromised and yet it was a man who well who appears to have been dealt with faithfully by the Lord God despite the mistakes that perhaps he made from time to time it was a man with whom God saw fit to work a man who God used to indeed begin the deliverance of Israel at this time perhaps despite Samson himself. A man who God trained by experience and certainly by adversity, so that ultimately Samson, at the end of his life, puts his trust in the Lord God, not asking for deliverance. And yet certainly what happened in his death event was to begin the delivery of his people, even if they, they weren't watching at that moment. Of course, whatever we might think of Samson and however we might choose to interpret or judge him, that there is one thing for sure. We can be absolutely certain of God's assessment of the man. For whilst judges might give us uh, Samson warts and all, you, you might say, when the, the New Testament writer in the Hebrews comes to sum up the man, you remember that he chooses to, to put the positive in front of us. And so Samson is listed with great men of faith like Noah and Abraham and Samuel and David. And when the writer to the Hebrews gives a list of the attributes of faithful characters such as this, actually a lot of them are almost as if uh, that the writer at the moment is thinking of Samson himself, almost as if God is choosing to emphasize the positive in Samson's experience. Because he did subdue kingdoms, he did stop them out of lions. Out of weakness, he was made strong and waxed valiant in fight, turning the flight of the armies of the aliens. What, a, what an encouraging thing it is, brothers and sisters, that, that whatever we might think of Samson, what, whatever mistakes he might have made, yet he was dealing with a God who saw fit to see the positive and to remember the positive when he gained to give the divine assessment. And perhaps without that steer, we might be tempted to, to concentrate more on the mistakes he made, 
uh, and the weakness that he displays. But, but God chooses not to do that. And perhaps then we should take the, the same lead. Come with me to the start of chapter 16 for, for perhaps the, the most positive uh, thing which Samson is depicted to have done comes hot on the heels of perhaps, well, arguably the, the most uh, difficult thing, the, 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 the least uh, proud event of his life. You, you remember at the beginning of chapter 16, we have the occasion of Samson visiting the harlot. And yet what's to come on the heels of that is a so positive a description. But the negative to start with, verse 1, Then went Samson to Gaza and saw there an harlot and went in unto her. And it was told the Gazites, saying, Samson is come hither. And they compassed him in, and laid wait for him all night in the gate of the city and were quiet all the night, saying, in the morning, when it is day, we shall kill him. You have to ask, what were the men of Gaza thinking? I mean, this was the man who had, in the previous chapter, been delivered to them by 3,000 of his own countrymen, and yet he had burst the rope he had been uh, secured with, as if it was nothing, and had killed a 1,000 Philistines on his own with, with the jawbone of an ass. How on earth did they think that they would detain him when he reappeared from the house of this particular lady? On the other hand, you might think, well, what was Samson thinking? What, why would he go to such a place? You know, I'm pretty convinced he did not go to find a, a particular type of lady. I think he went to Gaza for a, an entirely different reason. Yes, he got distracted when he got there. Remember, this is typical Samson. He, he went somewhere and saw something which was a, a problem for him. But I wonder whether we can't be, well, more graceful. Maybe we can find a more noble reason for Samson to go there in the first place. Remember that at the time there were five key cities of the Philistines. Uh, and in this period, all five cities have something to do with the Lord God of Israel. Ashkelon, that was one of the key cities, and Samson himself has to do with the men of Ashkelon because it's from there which Samson retrieves 30 um, sets of clothing to, to um, pay a wager which he had lost. Now, around the same period of time, in the early chapters of Samuel, you might remember that the Lord God, via his ark, had something to do with the Philistines who inhabited the cities of Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. So Ashdod is the, the city where the ark was first taken when it was captured by the Philistines. You remember Eli dies of, uh, with the shock of the news. But when the ark gets there, the men of Ashdod realize it, it's not such a, a fine idea because their god Dagon keeps falling down in front of the ark. The, the men are, are uh, smitten by boils, so they, they do their best to get rid of it quickly. They send it to Ekron. The same thing happens. By the time they decide to send it to Gath, the men of Gath say, no thanks, we don't want it. So those four Philistine cities have had something to do with the Lord God of Israel. And I just wonder, you know, whether we might argue that Samson went to Gaza to complete the set. Of course, it was a dangerous place for him to go, particularly for a wanted man. This was most likely the military center of the Philistine Empire. It was the gateway to Egypt. Remember that when the Philistines finally secured Samson, this was where they were most comfortable to confine him. 
because it was in Gaza that he was imprisoned. But potentially then, Samson went there to, to complete the suite of Philistine cities, but perhaps to do something even more important than that. But remember I said that, that the most positive comes on the heels of a very negative event. Well, just look at verse 3. For, for when Samson emerges from the house of this woman, he does something intriguing and remarkable. Verse 3, Samson lay till midnight and arose at midnight and took the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and went away with them, bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the hill that is before Hebron. Intriguing, you know, when you look at Samson's various experiences, there are times when we are told that God impelled him to do certain things. It, it began at the end of our reading, which we shared, Judges 13. Um, Samson began to be moved uh, as he, he lived between Azora and Eshtinol. Uh, and that sequence continues. So we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him in the event of the, the killing of the lion, Judges 14. Again, the same phrase is used. It came mightily upon him when he went to Ashkelon to secure the clothing to, to pay off his bet. Chapter 15, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him when he, he dispatched 1,000 Philistine warriors. But chapter 16, there is no mention. Uh, is that a suggestion that Samson here is now doing what he had intended to do in the first place? Not that God was impelling him to do it. Certainly God was assisting him. I mean, there's no way Samson could have moved such gates. We're talking multiple tons of stone and wood. We're talking moving them from sea level up to the top of a mountain. But I think really the focus has to be on, on what did he do once he had retrieved the gates and moved them. And remember, he, he points them towards Hebron. Of course, he couldn't see Hebron. You can see there on the map, it's a stretch. It's 40 miles to the east. Remember, he climbs the mountain outside Gaza early morning. So the sun is likely to rise in that direction from Hebron. And the word where it says he, he put it before, it's a vague word, but it most likely means that Samson put the gates pointing towards that place. And it was a, a superhuman effort which God empowered him to do, and potentially God empowered him to be the very best he could be in doing this. Because Hebron surely is, is the indication of what Samson was thinking at this time. Why, why else would you work Hebron into the description of what the man did? And then when you remember what Hebron signified and the history of Hebron, well, of course, we're reminded, aren't we, from Genesis 13, that, that Hebron was the place where Abraham chose to live after God had um, caused him to survey a land, which he was in the process of promising and delivering to Abram uh, as a, an eternal home. And Hebron was the highest city in Canaan, 500 feet above Jerusalem. And Abram did settle there. In fact, he buried his wife, he buried his son, Isaac, Rebekah and Leah, all buried in Hebron. 
And it seems very likely, I think, that Samson's mind was in that direction also. And so we're told that he pointed the gate towards Hebron. Because I, I don't suppose for a moment that Abraham, when he received these promises, ever imagined such a graphic um, portrayal of what he was promised. You remember Genesis 22, that, that Abraham, after um, offering Isaac, was assured that his seed would possess the gate of his enemies. And did you think Abraham ever pictured that one of his descendants would indeed possess the gate of his enemies, carry them from the, sh the shoreline to the top of the hill and point them to the place where, well, where, where Abraham had received the promises and the assurances from God that his family would have hope for the future. And so it is then that in doing this, it appears that Samson not only looks backwards towards Abraham and the promises that he had received, but also looks forwards to the delivering of a seed who would, who would deliver all that God was promising, the, the faithful Abraham at this time. Uh, and the gates which Samson secured weren't just a, a set of concrete and wooden uh, artifacts, were they? That the gates of the city were so much more than that. You do a little survey of that phrase, and we're reminded that the gates of the city were the place in which business was done. Abram himself secured a burial place for his family from the children of Heth at the gates of the city. And the gates of the city had to do with the finance of the place too. Boaz secured the inheritance for Naomi and Ruth within the gates of the city. Justice was done there. Absalom tried to judge the people at the gates of the city. It, it was where kings met their, their people. David met the people at the news of Absalom's death. And in terms of Gaza, remember this was the military capital of the Philistine Empire. And Samson plucked those gates as if they were a tent peg. That's the word which is used for, for what happened that morning. And in short, then, the gates of the city which Samson removed represented the whole government of the place. Uh, and we are reminded that it was said of the Lord Jesus that the government will be upon his shoulders. As indeed the gates of the city were upon the shoulders of Samson as he climbed that mountain that morning. Uh, and so you see then why I suggest that Whilst Samson, perhaps in his most compromised in the first two verses of chapter 16, was empowered by God to be, well, to be forward-looking and to perhaps leave an example for the children of Israel who he was judging at the time, to point them in the direction, the right direction also. And whilst we might be tempted then, when somebody says the name Samson, to, to picture him between the pillars of the temple of Dagon, perhaps it is kinder to picture Samson with the gates of Gaza upon his shoulders, arms outstretched, with the sun rising over Hebron. Here then, Samson being typical of Israel, and yet God saw his potential. And so writes into the book of Judges a moment where Samson looks back to where the nation has come from 
and looks forward, connects forward to the way in which the Lord God was to deliver all that had been promised. Of course, if you look for parallels between Samson and the Lord Jesus, there are a surprising number of them. The similarities between the two uh, men are, are, are intriguing. Remember, Delilah was to betray Samson for pieces of silver. Well, exactly the same was to happen to the Lord Jesus. He would be betrayed for pieces of silver and with a kiss. It's said of Samson, it, it, well, in the Septuagint translation, at least the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that the Philistines smote him with the palms of their hands. So that's exactly the same words in the Greek, which is used in Matthew 26, when the treatment of the Lord Jesus is described. We're told that he died with his hands outstretched between the pillars of the temple. Uh, and we can picture, of course, our Lord, who died hands outstretched upon a cross. And Samson gave his life to begin the delivery of his people from the Philistines. That The five lords of the, the five cities were in that temple that day when, when Samson brought down the roof. And Jesus, likewise, gave his life to destroy the power of sin and death. In some ways, you know, the, the differences between these two men are even more intriguing than the similarities. Samson, at his death, prayed for vengeance upon his enemies. We're told that the Lord Jesus prayed for his enemies. Samson wanted to crush his enemies through death. Jesus died to save all, including those who considered themselves to be his enemies when he was put to death. And while Samson's dead, dusty body was, um, was carried away from the temple of Dagon, yet we know that the grave could not hold the body of the Lord Jesus because of the man he was and the example that he set. And so it is then that Samson awaits in the grave for the promises which will be delivered through that which the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished. And Samson also waits for a, a world which is said to be worthy of him. And again, how encouraging it is that the, the Lord God would focus on the things which are positive from the example of such a man. Of course, it, it is tempting in some ways to, to think that Samson... In the end, his, his experience and the progress were with God alone, that he died alone in the temple of Dagon, and that he, he never really connected with the people who he had been sent to save. I mean, that's what judge means, isn't it? They weren't leaders, they were saviors. And there is, of course, a possibility that, that in fact, Samson, in his death, inspired the people to do better, even if he didn't lead them, even if in his entire judgeship he didn't um, manage to motivate them to any sort of military action other than military action against himself, there is the potential to see in Samson's example and in his death a moment which was to, to galvanize the people and to challenge them to make progress. I don't know if you've ever looked at it. It has to do with the chronology of this period. Remember that Samson's um, judgeship was going to take place within a 40-year period. 
we told at the very beginning, we, we read it in our, our reading, that the Philistine period uh, would be 40 years worth. Now, it's only after that period is announced that we're told Samson was promised. So I guess we have to give him some time to grow up, to get big enough to fight lions and to, to marry uh, wives, whether he should have or not. So potentially then his judgeship, which is referred to at the end of chapter 15, is a 20-year period that comes at the end of the 40-year period of the Philistine um, campaign. Of course, we open the early pages of Samuel and we find that those first uh, few chapters, certainly chapters 4, 5 and 6, are full of references to Philistines. So we can lay Samuel's chronology alongside Samson to get the picture then that potentially, whilst Israel weren't dealing with Samson very much, while Samuel was working with them, Samson was working amongst the Philistines. And potentially, you know, you can also place the Ark of the Covenant, a 20-year period in which the Ark of the Covenant was in kirjath Jerem at the end of this period of 40 years. Just have a look at it. It's 1 Samuel chapter 7. I've never really looked at the chronology very well, and it it kind of brought the whole thing together for me to start placing these different characters and events together because it means that potentially Samson's life did set an example for the people that, that he was disconnected with for most of his judgeship. 1 Samuel 7 verse 1, the men of kirjath Jerem came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Aminadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the Ark of the Lord. It came to pass while the Ark abode in Kyrgyz Jerem that the time was long, for it was 20 years. So, so there you see, I've got the period of the Ark at the bottom of the screen there is a, a 20 year period when it was in Kyrgyz Jerem. Now, the intriguing thing is this if you have a look in Judges chapter 18 for a moment, keep your hand in 1 Samuel 7. I might be too late, sorry if I am. Look, have a, a quick look in Judges 18. And you might be reminded that Kyrgyz Jerem had a different name. See, Judges 18, verse 12, and we're now actually in the account of the tribe of Dan um, moving northward. Remember I said Samson came from a, a part of the tribe who hadn't moved north for an easy life. Chapter 18 is the description of the, the majority of the tribe that did move north. And just look where they travelled by. Judges 18, verse 12, they went up and pitched in kirjath Jerem in Judah, wherefore they called that place Mahanedan unto this day. Behold, it is behind kirjath Jerem. Intriguingly, you go back to Judges chapter 13, and the last verse, and what did we read together? The Spirit of the Lord began to move Samson at times, revised version, in Mahanedan between Zorah and Eshtiel. And potentially then, one of the catalysts for Samson's judgeship was the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant for this 20-year period in Mehanadan. It was where he was, or certainly within sight of it. And potentially, if that's the case, if we can connect Samson's judgeship with the period at which the Ark rested at Kyrgyz-Jerim, within the same sort of geography, 
well, perhaps potentially we can also connect what happens now in 1 Samuel 7 with what had happened at the end of Samson's life. You see, look at the reaction of the children of Israel. We read it was 20 years, that that's the, the tenure of the ark in Kyrgyz Jirams. How does that verse continue? And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Why? Why did they lament after the Lord? If the ark had been in, in that place for 20 years, what, what might have inspired them all of a sudden to lament? Well, was it perhaps that word came to the people as Samuel worked with them, that in fact the man Samson had given his life for them in the city of Gaza? See, you look a few, a few verses later on, and we are definitely here at the end of the period of the Philistine uh, dominion. So verse 13, 1 Samuel 77, the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. You know, to me, that, that is such a, a fitting end to, to this man, Samson, not to picture him as a, a bloodied, crumpled, dusty body retrieved from a, a ruin to, to wait in the grave for God to deliver a kingdom, but, but rather to picture him potentially as a, an example to Israel, one that Israel couldn't ignore. Yes, they, they succeeded in ignoring him for much of his judgeship. In fact, they even handed him over at one point. But was it that ultimately what Samson managed to achieve when he closed his eyes to the attractions of the world and, and asked God for help, was it then that he managed to, to inspire the people to, to gather to, to return to the Lord God, and so ultimately to, to be released from the grip of the Philistines. It is a much nicer picture for Samson, isn't it? Not, not a, a dusty corpse, but, but rather a, an example that was set for the people. And I wonder whether the people also would simply have thought of Samson as a, a dusty corpse. I mean, do you not think they might have thought of the gates of the city of Gaza on a hill pointing toward Hebron? I don't imagine for a moment the Philistines took them down again. There are tons and tons of material here. And I just wonder then whether Samson ultimately, one of his finest moments was that he pointed the gates of a Philistine city to a place in Israel which reminded the people of all that they had been promised and pointed toward the way in which the Lord God will ultimately deliver all that he had promised. And of course it is so encouraging for us, isn't it, to, to think of the way in which the Lord God worked with Samson through his weakness and potentially through his strength. And we can get distracted and we too can make poor decisions. Unfortunately, from time to time, you and I can be self-centered. And yet we are dealing with a God who, who wants to work with us, who has promised great things despite of us. And how encouraging is it then that whatever we might say of Samson and whatever 
mistakes he might have made, still ultimately the divine verdict is of a man who was faithful and waits for a new kingdom to come. And what a lovely picture for the writer of the judges to have woven into his description of the man's achievements. But there was a moment where he, he lifted himself up from a, a terrible mistake and pointed his nation towards a better future, reminding them of where they had come from and where, ultimately, with God's blessing, they would go to. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Tim. Thank you very much.